You're listening to Lanyap, a weekly digest of news, personal finance, brotherly banter, and whatever else is on our minds. From Stokes Family Office. Thank you for listening to Lanyap Podcast. Uh, we have a special guest this week. His name is Cullen Roche. And this is one we're really excited about. Cullen is the author of a very popular blog on economics called Pragmatic Capitalism. He also launched a new investment firm called Discipline Funds. Cullen is really one of the clearest thinkers on uh, the modern monetary system and specifically the use of monetary policy in the new era post-financial crisis, which includes uh, quantitative easing, zero interest rate policy, and other mechanisms that the Federal Reserve has used in the period post-financial crisis 2008 to present. Cullen will be our first guest, but he'll be one of many. And this is one that we really hope that you enjoy uh, and take something out of because this is a topic that is extremely confusing and extremely important as the Federal Reserve carries a lot of control as it relates to policy decisions and then just general sentiment in the markets. So I want to just start this off with maybe an observation and then just lead it to a softball question. But Cullen, you've recently written that you think that inflation has or is peaking, and I want you to get you to comment on that. But maybe before that, just a general softball question: What causes inflation? <laughs> softball question. <laughs> Gosh, you know, I always tell people that inflation is so much more complex than most people tend to think. I think the sort of dumbed down like econ 101 definition would basically be that more money chases the same amount of goods or something like that. And you get some resulting rise in the price index as a result of that. But I think that over the course of the last kind of 20 to 30 years, we've sort of discovered that inflation is a lot more complex than that. And so the way that the money, even if money is ultimately one of the things that is such a large contributing factor to inflation in the long run, it depends in a lot of ways how that money's created, how it's utilized, how it's distributed. And so you get all these complex factors that impact the rate of inflation because especially in the last 20 to 30 years across the global economy, you've had really big secular headwinds in terms of a lot of these big trends, when you look at things like, say, demographics or inequality, the way that globalization has impacted all of this, these things all impact the distribution of money and the way that things are produced. And so you get these weird supply demand dynamics where the things that you look at in a really simplistic economic model that you would think would cause inflation maybe don't cause as much inflation as that simple model would predict because you have all these unusual events going on in terms of the distribution through demographics and inequality and things like that. So inflation is actually, I think, one of the most complex macroeconomic variables that you can try to predict, and no one is very good at it. That's what's you know almost the most frightening thing about inflation is that it's actually very, very difficult to predict. And so the fact that we rely so much on politicians and you know people who are in power to you know try to predict what these things will result in ultimately big policies like we've seen in the last like three four years for instance is almost frightening to some degree because this is such a confusing thing to begin with so the last few years were at least somewhat 
I wouldn't say easy to predict, but you could at least predict the directionality of inflation. I think looking at the last few years, because the the dynamics of COVID were really pretty basic. I mean, you we basically paid people huge amounts of money to sit around and do nothing to a large degree. And so when you look at a really basic economic model based on that, well, the result obviously was going to be that the government ran huge deficits. Deficits are the equivalent of what I like to call asset printing, even if they're not technically money printing in a proper sense. They expand net financial assets across the economy though. And at the same time, you know, you not only had supply chain imbalances across COVID and the way that it impacted everything, but you had a lot of people were literally being paid to stay home and not do anything. And so the direction of inflation over the course of the last really two to three years, in my view, was fairly easy to predict. Getting the exact right amount, you know, is obviously a lot more difficult in the way that's going to unfold across everything. But the last few years have been sort of a situation where more money chased essentially the same amount of goods. And what we're seeing now is the result of what everyone's kind of feeling. Why is that different? And I think this is a really good point related to what happened in COVID versus what happened previously through all the quantitative easing measures, but maybe just talk about what was so different with COVID yeah. versus you know, 2008 to 2019. So this is really the biggest lesson coming out of COVID, I think, is that the government can definitely cause inflation, but the way that a lot of us think about the way the government operates is sort of confused in a lot of ways. So for instance, in 2008, you had the government, the treasury ran technically fairly large deficits. So they ran the Recovery Act in 2008, 2009 was like $800 billion. It was big. It was it was big for that time. And then you had the, the Fed was much more active in the market. And what the Fed was doing was expanding their balance sheet trillions of dollars in the post you know, financial crisis period. And so a lot of people tend to think that it's the Fed that really you know, controls the money printer and, you know, that all of their things that they do will ultimately cause inflation. And, you know, one of the things I was really hyper-focused on and in some sense learning at that time was that it's actually the other way around, that really it's the treasury that their balance sheet expenses are hugely important. They're the real asset printer or money printer. And what the Fed does for the most part is they change the composition of the existing financial assets in the economy to try to you know, influence things in a sort of tangential way. And this was the big lesson coming out of COVID because it became really abundantly clear that the Treasury has been running $3 trillion deficits, these huge, huge numbers in the last two, three years. And the Fed was basically doing a lot of the same stuff they did coming out of the financial crisis for the most part. But for some reason, we got this much higher rate of inflation. And to me, I think that the big lesson coming out of that is that the Treasury was much more active. The Treasury was expanding their balance sheet. They were expanding the quantity of bonds in a much more meaningful way that had a much bigger impact on the overall rate of inflation. What about just the dynamics of monetary policy versus just a direct transfer payment to somebody sitting at home paid to do nothing. I guess this comes back to sort of the multiplier effect, but is there just more hoops to jump through from the Federal Reserve getting liquidity 
through bank yeah. reserves versus just a direct payment to an individual or to a company? Well, it's different. I mean, like, so at a really basic, like, dynamic level, if you sort of think of this from first principles perspective, when the government runs a deficit, what they really do is they basically take money from somebody who wasn't going to spend that money in the first place, probably. They give them a bond and they give this other person with a higher marginal propensity to consume the money that was previously saved by this other person. That balance sheet expansion not only expands the total quantity of financial assets, but it redistributes money from somebody who was not likely to spend it to somebody who is much more likely to spend it. And so what the Fed does is really they come in after the fact and they interact with that person who got the bond and they say, okay, here's some bank deposits, essentially. We're going to take your bonds and now we've changed the composition of the assets for the person that holds the bonds. That person, they were likely not going to spend the money in the first place. So that's why they bought the bond in the first place. So you get this composition change where that person might go out and maybe say they're more inclined to buy stocks or they're more inclined to buy high yield bonds. And that's one of the, I think, unrelated knock-on effects of QE that the Fed is hoping for. The Fed hopes that by changing the portfolio balance of that person's portfolio, that they're going to be more inclined to take risk. And the Fed hopes that that might you know, result in higher private investment and things like that, that can have a big multiplier effect in the long run. But it's not directly, I wouldn't say money printing in the sense that creating that new bond and the treasury spending in that initial instance is its proper financial asset printing in the sort of lazy terminology that a lot of us like to think of it in terms of just money printing, because the Fed's really just changing the composition, whereas the Treasury is expanding the size of the composition. Yeah. So as it relates to going forward, I mean, we saw CPI prints, what, around 7% year over year last month that came out. And you came out right after that and said that you think the inflation has peaked. Can you explain what your rationale is for that sort of forecast or prediction? Yeah, I mean, again, this is, <laughs> I might end up looking like an idiot here in a little bit if, I mean, say used car prices keep going up or, I mean, if the news from today ends up being true that Russia is going to attack, you know, Ukraine and cut off oil to Eastern Europe. I mean, you could have oil prices that blow through $100 in the next few months and that will put a you know, a socket in or a wrench in all the inflation data. But I mean, my short term sort of view here in the next kind of like nine to 12 months is predicated on really the rate of change of the statistical data and the way that things are going to start looking on a year over year basis. And so, for instance, when you look at used car prices, the rate of change is already starting to slow. And so what happened really in the the beginning of COVID was you had what economists were calling a base effect, which is basically like the way to think about this is that when the stock market crashes, let's say it falls you know, 50% and then it recovers back to where it originally was a year later, well, you have a 100% increase on a year over year basis. And so if the stock market then goes up you know, another 20% the next year, well, the rate of change in that first year looks exaggerated because of the decline. And so a lot of what we're seeing now in the data 
is the result of this sort of base effect where you had a big decline in the first, really the first year of COVID. And then so the year over year numbers all looked really exaggerated. And now the rate of change is starting to slow some. And so, and we're starting to see this in, like if you look at like the Bloomberg Commodity Index now, you had these huge year over year numbers. I can't remember exactly what they were, but the rate of changes started to slow. And so based on like the rear view, like three, four months, commodity prices have been roughly flat. And so if commodity prices, even if they go up, say 5% over the course of the next year, the inflation data is going to start to moderate just because you've got the opposite of this bottoming effect, this sort of like topping effect in the statistics where the data just, unless it continues at that like torrid trajectory that it was on coming off of that base effect, you're just not going to see as much of a contributing factor into all of the CPI data. So, and that's the thing with a lot of this inflation is that like used cars and oil and commodities in general have been, they've been contributing like 30 to 40% to the year over year figures. And so even if you just get a slowing in like the used car data, you're going to start seeing not necessarily like deflation, but you're going to start seeing what's called disinflation, which is basically like a slowing, a slowing increase in inflation. So rather than seeing 7%, we're going to start seeing six and five and four. I think it'll probably be like three to four by the end of the year, looking at core personal consumption expenditures, which is the Fed's preferred measure of inflation. So it's going to slow, but that's still like to put things in perspective, three to 4% is still, I mean, it's almost 2x the Fed's preferred level. Their target rate is 2%. So inflation is going to be high through year end for certain, but I do think there's an increasing probability that we've, we're not likely to see like a continued seven, eight, or, you know, a lot of people are worried that it's going to like start to kind of like get this price spiral out of control higher. And I think the data going forward and even in the last few months is already starting to look like we're going to start seeing a kind of slowing rate of inflation going forward. The other question is, is inflation and interest rates highly correlated? And if they are, why hasn't the bond market bought the inflation narrative? The bond market, in my view, really, they care about what the Fed thinks. And the Fed, I don't think they're worried about the long run rate of inflation. And so they've kind of pegged things at this, you know, 0% rate with the expectation that in the long run, inflation will moderate back towards their target. And so the long end of the curve, I mean, frankly, the long end of the curve seems to be saying that the Fed really does not have a lot of flexibility to raise rates. And so I've been writing recently that if you remember like the early 2000s period, the Greenspan conundrum period, the Fed was trying to raise rates, hoping that rates would kind of filter through the longer end of the curve. And the longer end of the curve basically was looking at the Fed and saying like, you guys you don't have that much flexibility to move here. The economy is not as strong as you think. And if you keep raising rates like this, you're going to invert the curve and you're going to potentially crush a lot of things that, you know, you can't afford to crush. And so weirdly, I think that the economy looks really similar here where you've got the long end kind of around 2%. And I think what that's basically saying is that the long run expected rate of economic growth is pretty low, that really the a continued or like a reversion to the trend of the last like 10 years in the long run is actually very likely. I think what the long end is actually saying to us right now is that the potential 
to revert back to that trend rises increasingly if the Fed actually moves really fast. So I think, for instance, if the Fed were to like raise rates to like 2%, let's say this week at this week's meeting, there isn't a doubt in my mind that this economy would start to grind to a halt in the next like 18 to 24 months. And so I think that's kind of what the yield curve is telling us that basically, yeah, inflation looks worrisome in the short term, but in the long run, I think the bond market is likely to be right that you've got, you know, and kind of like touching on what we originally talked about with all these big headwinds, those secular headwinds, things like the demographic trends, the inequality, the globalization, these are huge, huge macro headwinds that even when we print six, seven trillion dollars inside of an 18 to 24 month period, we still only have six, seven percent inflation, which is when you think about the size of the government's involvement in the economy, it's pretty incredible that seven percent inflation actually doesn't seem that high relative to what they've done in retrospect, I think. And so, you know, going forward, it's really easy to look at a scenario where I mean, like the government's peeling things back in a huge, huge way. The Build Back Better bill just got nuked. Like the government is going to be stepping back in a huge way in the next, say, two to three years. And so I could see an increasing probability of these big secular headwinds, you know, continuing to sort of suffocate the inflation data and the broader economy in a way that makes the long end of the bond market look really smart in the long run, where the likelihood of reverting back to the mean of, you know, the trend economic growth of the last sort of 10 years where we kind of had this boring sort of muddle through economic environment looks increasingly likely to me. Would you think that without any sort of government intervention, just in a static world, deflation would exist? And if so, I mean, obviously, if anybody has studied history and looked at deflationary periods, it's pretty horrible if we're looking at these headwinds, demographics, globalization, technology improvement, et cetera, those all seem not just disinflationary, but deflationary. And what is the negative consequence if that were to occur without government intervention? It's interesting to think about COVID and whether you know we would have had deflation inside of that period. I'm not really sure. I mean, I I think at the time, at the beginning of COVID, this thing looked a lot scarier than it's turned out to be. I mean, I don't want to like downplay the health impact of all of this, but on the whole, you know, there was a chance, like I remember I wrote a research note at the very beginning of it, comparing all this to the Spanish flu and the potential outcome that like, you know, this could kill like one to 2% of the entire global population. And the Spanish flu was killing children. Like I always tell people, like I've got two young kids, like you guys wouldn't have seen me anywhere. If this was killing children, you still wouldn't see me anywhere. Like I wouldn't have left my house if I thought there was a risk of exposing this to my kids. And I think that most parents probably would have felt that way. This thing would have been horribly frightening if this thing was killing kids in the way that the Spanish flu did. And so in a lot of weird way, COVID has not been nearly as bad as it looked like it could be. And I think that a lot of the stimulus that we kind of front loaded everything with was preparing for the worst. We kind of like threw the kitchen sink at this thing saying, all right, let's just print a lot more than we probably should, because what if? What if this turns out to be really awful? 
And, you know, luckily it didn't. But so I kind of think in retrospect, it's easy to kind of look back and say, oh, we probably did too much. Like the third stimulus bill was probably too much. I don't think there would be deflation if we hadn't done everything that we did, just because I don't think COVID turned out to be quite as bad economically as a lot of people probably expected it to be. But you would have had a really crummy economic environment no matter what. So, you know, the thing about deflation is it it tends to occur, especially the really traumatic ones, they tend to occur inside of like debt bubbles, like the housing crisis. The thing that made that so frightening was that you had balance sheets collapsing from debt deflation. And that is really traumatic because it's the exact opposite of money printing. It's money destruction. And that is a very sort of unnatural process inside of any long-term economic period. Colin, what do you say to those who, we talked about disinflation and deflation. What do you say to those that talk about hyperinflation in the context of like a superpower or world-leading economy and currency like the US dollar? Even if you're in the camp that says that all fiat currencies are bad, it's still, in my mind, it's still a game of relative badness. And when you look at it in that sense, the US dollar is still, I mean, the dollar dominates the global economy by such a huge margin that it's just not even close. Like in terms of like foreign held reserve, the dollar is something like 45%. The next closest is the euro at like 20%. The yen is number three at like 6%. The numbers just aren't even close when you do a comparison on a relative basis. And and so much of that is just a function of the fact that the U.S. economy is so hyperproductive. So even just looking at like, you know, the relative alternatives, the euro, you know, they don't even have a, a federalized government, really. They don't even have a federalized treasury. So they don't even have bonds that really trade at a broad euro basis. And then... You can make an argument that China is kind of like the next rising economic superpower, but I don't know who trusts the Chinese currency and, you know, Chinese bonds. I mean, it's still a very closed economy. They seem to, in a lot of ways, a lot of the recent policy trends seem to be sort of reverting back to this like protectionist, you know, the opposite of a free market type of economy. So I don't know what the alternative is. I can see situations where like if you're looking at maybe a lot of like South American countries or, you know, a lot of countries in, you know, like Africa or, you know, some of the Middle Eastern regions. Like, yeah, there's probably really strong arguments for being very, very worried about high inflation, hyperinflation. But in terms of this, you know, relative game of what is the alternative, I just don't see how it's even a plausible scenario for countries like the United States or most of developed Europe, just because, I mean, in terms of where the demand is going to come from, if the United States is having a hyperinflation, it means that the whole global economy is going through some sort of horrific, you know, cataclysmic type of decline. So it's always a weird scenario to think about, because if that were happening to the dollar, I don't even think people would, you know, they wouldn't even care about what was happening with financial assets. You know, you'd probably be worried about whether or not you're even going to survive the next like two or three years. 
You'd be worried about how many guns you have. Like you're not worried about what your financial portfolio is doing if the dollar is collapsing. I think when we just talked about this earlier, the federal response to COVID, financial response to COVID, and then the ensuing inflation, how it's amazing that inflation is only printing at six and seven percent. What do you think? Just future, let's just call it a typical recessionary environment. How do you think what occurred during COVID structurally changes federal government's responses to financial impacts in the economy? I don't know. That's a, an interesting one to think about because I think that the last, you know, you see this with the response to like the Build Back Better bill that if you get inflation wrong, it can blow up your whole currency. And that's the thing about inflation is that inflation negatively impacts everybody. Whereas like, you know, we talk about a lot of people complain about like low wage growth or like low economic growth. And the reality is that like low economic growth isn't really a, it's not a bad thing. Like you kind of wish that, you know, the economy was growing faster and there was less inequality and all these a lot of the stuff that we've been seeing in the last 20 to 30 years that people I think have been complaining about. That's a relative sense, though, where like even the people in the bottom 50 percent when there's inequality, you can still have the boats can all still be rising. It's just that some of the boats are getting a lot bigger than the others are faster. So, but all boats can rise even in a period where you have a huge amount of inequality. Whereas during a hyperinflation or a really high inflation, everyone is pretty much negatively impacted by that in some way, except for maybe like a very small percentage of people with huge amounts of pricing power. So, that's the thing that's so scary about inflation. And I think you're seeing that finally in some of the public policy response where, you know, people like Joe Manchin are coming out and basically being like, okay, no more. I've seen enough. This is actually scary. What if the Cullens of the world are wrong and we actually do end up with 10, 15% inflation in the next like two years? That would be a really catastrophic scenario for everybody. And so, it's weird. It kind of felt like we're having this big, big swing towards really liberal policies, especially coming out of the financial crisis because we were having so much trouble causing inflation. And then it seems like all within like an 18 month period. Well, the government did a lot of the things that the, you know, the AOCs of the world really wanted us to do. And you got inflation pretty fast and people got scared pretty fast. And so it looks like we've stepped on the brakes in a big way. It's not surprising to me that inflation has scared people the way that it has. So, and maybe that in the long run, maybe that's kind of a good thing because, you know, it kind of seemed like in a lot of ways, the political spectrum was really shifting in a really rapid way where people thought government spending maybe can't even cause inflation. And to some degree, it felt like we were veering into this environment where we were going to really run, you know, huge, huge deficits every year in perpetuity. And these were going to become built into like big, big government packages. And, you know, we've eased back on that a little bit. So maybe that's not such a bad thing in the long run. I don't think the government's going to shrink in the long run. But I think that being scared of inflation is not a bad thing, especially because, like I was saying earlier, nobody really knows what causes it in the long run. Nobody can predict what the rate of it will look like in the future because there's so many unpredictable variables that go into it. This ties into the political cycle that we're on now. I wonder what happens if you know, midterms come around and let's say that the prediction is true that inflation has peaked or is peaking and starts coming down due to base effects 
in the second half of this year, really how that impacts midterm elections and the political environment in general. Maybe the whole inflation narrative that governments can't really cause inflation comes back in earnest, but I don't know. Personally, I think the midterms are, they're probably too close. Like the way the data is going to unfold, I mean, you're going to get at least two or three more prints around 7%. Even by November, you're still going to have, I mean, inflation that's over probably 5 6%. So people are still going to, the data is still going to be, it's going to look kind of scary even going into the midterms. So that's the other thing. Inflation can be a really slow moving beast. And so especially the way this data unfolds, you know, it gets released on a monthly basis, you're looking at the trailing 12 months, the trailing 12 month data looks awful by any measure. And it's just going forward, like you're not gonna start seeing this, what I've been referring to as this topping effect until you're really not gonna start seeing it till mid-summer. So even by then, you know, and I'm assuming that some of this stuff will either slow meaningfully or reverse. But if you get, if you have $100 oil by, you know, the middle of the summer, inflation could sit at six, 7% all the way through this year, which if you're a Democrat, that's a disaster. Yeah. So when should I trade in my car, Colin? <laughs> this is becoming a Carvana podcast. <laughs> right, exactly. Oh, <laughs> uh, God. You know, I'm so bad at predicting short-term trends in, in anything. I mean, I don't know. This seems like an amazing time. Like, I wish I think about selling my house all the time, but I'm like, I don't ever want to move again. <laughs> I literally, I hate moving so much that that's how badly I refuse to sell my house right now. But I, I think about it and I'm like, I could make, you know, a small fortune selling my house right now. And just because of how crazy everything is, but like, you know, where am I going to go? What am I going to do? I'm going to move sideways to some other house that's overpriced where I have to, you know, do stupid things, bidding on the new house, waiving all my contingencies and all the stuff that everyone's doing these days. So I don't know if you actually like improve your situation, selling a lot of these assets and then having to go out, especially if you have to replace it. Right. It's a very good point. Maybe that's a good segue related to housing. The housing market is just insane, even in New Orleans, which is everywhere. Uh, yeah, it's insane. What are the underlying dynamics of the purchaser in 2021 and 22 versus 2007? Yeah, well, that's the craziest thing is that, you know, even with the crazy price appreciation, the biggest change in the dynamics there is that the quality of the buyer right now is so much better. So a lot of the people that were buying during the financial crisis and the run up to it, you know, these were people with you know low credit scores that in a lot of cases they were buying their second or third home. There were, you know, rampant stories about, you know, people like strippers going out and buying like six, seven homes and, you know, flipping them and renting them out and doing silly stuff that that level of like speculative fervor doesn't exist in this housing market to the same extent that it did there. But I don't know, big rubs and prices always scare me. There's something about like, especially with real estate, like real estate is essentially, it's a depreciating block of wood and, you know, raw material sitting on like a scarce piece of land. 
That's really what real estate is. And in the long run, that thing, it has to be replaced. It cannot appreciate at a rate of, you know, double digit growth just because, I mean, maybe in certain scenarios, but or certain areas in certain scenarios, but in aggregate, like the whole country's real estate is just not that scarce in the long run. And so we have this weird supply dynamic in this current environment where we're just not building a lot of houses. So that's a whole other story, but big price run-ups just always worry me. Like when I see the stock market up 100% year over year, I look at that and I'm like, mathematically, this cannot continue in perpetuity because corporations don't make 100% per year in cash flows. It just doesn't happen. So I always kind of fall back on dynamics and try to look at, you know, what is the sustainability of these pricing changes? And the the current environment in real estate is so different from the financial crisis because the speculative fervor just isn't as great. But I do worry about the price dynamics just because you would think at some level people will throw in the towel and be like, look, I am not paying $2 million for a two bedroom that I have to remodel. Yeah. And the other thing is like, where is all the money coming from? Where was it sitting 18 months ago that all of a sudden it's just come out like just crazy that people are buying all over the place? I don't know where. Well, so much of it is that, you know, money really comes from two places. I mean, the government can create net financial assets. So they've printed, you know, $7 trillion or so. So that was a huge part of it. But borrowing has actually increased, too. So that's the other big place where private banks create money, too. And so, you know, anyone that can tap a mortgage, anyone who's got a pretty healthy balance sheet. And, you know, if you look at like the last 18 months with the way that the stock market has run up and the bond market has been really robust and uh, people's balance sheets look really strong, you know, if you're someone with a relatively high income and good credit score, it's really easy to go out and borrow new money these days. And it actually makes a lot of financial sense to do so in such a low interest rate environment. So, you know, those two things combined, to me, that's where the money's coming from. Speaking of a low interest rate environment on the borrower side, I guess we can shift more towards the investor side. And we're talking in the midst of a, what, probably nine or 10% correction. I guess it turned around mid market today, but on a forward-looking basis, it's sort of that Tina scenario in which 10-year treasury yields are 1.8% or 1.7%. And the only real alternative to fixed income is equities, and yet equity valuations are higher than their historical averages. How do you view, just from an asset allocation perspective, a saver or somebody approaching retirement, et cetera, looking at the market opportunity and trying to make a decision on portfolio allocation? It's really hard. I mean, it. I think this is the most certainly the most challenging environment of my career, even just looking at market history, this is an environment where, especially with the way inflation is, it's really, really challenging. I keep trying to come up with good answers for questions like this. And I always just keep telling people that, you know, I think the range of potential outcomes looking at like the next three to five, 10 years are so wide that like, what if I'm wrong about the inflation thing? And like, you end up with like a, you know, a, a 10 to 15% rate of inflation, like the 70s for the next few years. Or I could see a scenario where the housing market falls apart and you get kind of a, a mini repeat of like 2008 or something where you get kind of a deflation or 
you know, what happens with all this commercial real estate that's just kind of floating out there that, you know, nobody's really using anymore. There's all sorts of scenarios where I could see really a big deflationary bust. I could see maybe not a hyperinflation, but like a highish inflation that, you know, really reminds us a little bit of the 70s to some degree. But the range of potential outcomes looks so wide to me right now that, you know, nothing would surprise me. And so I think that I've personally, I mean, for my personal asset allocation and the way that I run my business, I've just become a huge fan of all weather portfolios, kind of like slinging money at a little bit of everything and saying, look, let's try to cover all of our bases so that, you know, especially from a behavioral perspective, we're not too worried about any sort of extreme thing blowing us up. And this environment just strikes me as like the perfect type of scenario for that sort of mentality because the range of outcomes is so potentially wide. Yeah, I think that's exactly right. And, you know, that's also accepting that likely returns are going to be lower in the future than they have been in the past and basically diversifying or hedging against major market outcomes, positive and negative. Mm -hmm. You're giving that up for maybe some sort of, you call it all weather or some relative certainty against other you know, busts on the downside. Yeah. We've gone through a couple of years of optimism, in, at least in markets, and it's hard to think going forward from here, what, what is an optimistic outcome? I guess inflation coming way down, earnings still being strong, people coming back to the workforce and having you know, positive economic growth are three things to be optimistic about. I don't know what the probabilities of those are, but it's a tough environment for somebody, a saver, an allocator, and all of the above. Yeah. I mean, I, it makes a lot of sense to own a little bit of everything. I mean, especially if you're, you know, if you're someone who can afford to, like, if you own, you know, real assets, you know, I'm generally not like a big advocate of buying like commodities and stuff like that. But this is the sort of environment where I tell people, you know, hey, you know, if you don't own a home, maybe it does make sense to own some gold and commodities just because, the range of outcomes here, you know, what if we're wrong about the inflation scenario? What if inflation doesn't come down for whatever reason? What if, you know, what if Russia does move into the Ukraine and oil goes, you know, a hundred, $150 and you get this scenario where, you know, the commodity indices all just blow out, you're going to have high inflation for years and years potentially. So you know, I don't know. To me, that's always as like, much as we can try to pontificate about like what's going to happen, I think the real value of like understanding macroeconomics and a lot of this stuff is ultimately looking at a lot of the range of outcomes and saying nobody knows nothing, you know, like to steal a quote from John Bogle. But that idea that the macro economy is so big and complex and the outcomes are, can be so disparate that it's really humbling to look at a lot of this stuff and a lot of people get in trouble, I think, because they they get overly confident about potential outcomes and they start saying, oh, well, you know, hyperinflation's coming, the government's ruining everything. And so I need to just own nothing but Bitcoin. And those sort of like maximalist positions or so, I think can be really damaging because if you're wrong, your outcome is asymmetric in a really potentially catastrophic way that is totally avoidable. The other thing is if you're right, then potentially psychologically, you want to repeat that success and ultimately you'll be wrong anyway. Totally. There was that story about a guy that uh, retired and had 100% of his positions in Tesla and had no interest in selling Tesla. It's basically, you become religiously 
Is that the guy on Twitter, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I guess one way to go about this from an equity investor's perspective, and I think everybody's been sort of pounding the table on this for the last 10 years and it hasn't come to fruition, is investing globally. And one question is, if there's a bust in the U.S. related to whether it's valuation driven or anything economic driven, the impact of that is going to be felt not just in the U.S., but just because everything is so global now. Are you still a proponent Mm -hmm. of global market investing despite U.S.'s outperformance over the last, what, at least 10 years? I am, you know, but I, I take a weird stance on it. I've written a bunch of stuff about this recently that like, it's really interesting to me the way that people wait. And this kind of gets into like the subjective nature of like active versus passive investing and things like that. And the way that when you actually look at the way like some passive indices are built, it's really, really, it's incredibly subjective. And so for instance, with Vanguard Total World, or like the MSCI All World Index, they use what's called a free float approach to building the market capitalization. Whereas I actually look at it and I use a full capitalization. So what Vanguard is really trying to do or what Vanguard uses the FTSE All World Index to build the Vanguard Total World, and they come out to like a 60-40 US versus foreign balance. But what they're doing is they're specifically weighting it based on the how investable the overall global equity market is. And so what that means basically is like, if you look at like the Chinese stock market or a lot of foreign markets, they're uninvestable because either like really rich families own the majority of the shares of an outstanding company, or maybe like the Chinese government owns a lot of it, or like the Swiss National Bank owns a lot of shares of something. So a lot of this stuff is literally not investable. And Vanguard or FTSE, they actually recalibrate their indices to correct for that. I actually think it's better to do it based on what the actual full cap weighting is. And when you actually calculate the full cap weighting, it's closer to like 40, 60. So it's almost the exact opposite. So I'm not just an advocate of diversifying globally. I'm actually an advocate of diversifying globally based on what the actual full market capitalization is. And one of the big reasons for that is that mainly I'm not that I worry about the US like losing its dominant role in the global economy, but that I'm aware of like the economic history and like the financial history of like, like imagine somebody who was an equity investor in London in the year 1850. Like you are or any period, you know, the 500 years before that, like you would have looked at your equity portfolio and you would have said, I don't want to own anything outside of the London Stock Exchange because nobody can compete with us. We're the best. We're number one. And empires fall. Empires change. And the global economy changes so fast these days that, you know, I think it makes a lot of sense to be hedged against the potential that the United States is just not going to be the dominant economic power forever. So especially when you start to look at some of these demographic trends, especially the ones coming out of like emerging Asia, like, you know, the population growth in places like India and some of these like Southeast Asian countries is just mind-blowing compared to what's going on in a lot of like developed Europe and developed, you know, North America. So you would think that as globalization increases, that 
the technologies that all of us use and produce, and you would think that a lot of the innovation that is occurring in the United States would filter throughout the global economy and that in a weird way, it kind of filters down the the United States' power in a relative sense. So I like being hedged against that. It's been a terrible outcome for, you know, whatever, 10 years, but this stuff tends to move in cycles too. Like, you know, in 1999, you could have said the same thing and you spent the next, you know, eight years basically watching, you know, all the foreign stocks outperform the domestic. So, right. Yeah. I also think it's sort of an unfair comparison just because of the underlying makeup of each one of these indices is so different in terms of sector, mm-hmm. sector breakdown. I mean, if, if you just neutralize it for the same percentage ownership of, you know, tech versus financials or materials or whatever, it doesn't look a whole lot different. But when you add the fact that Europe specifically is maybe just a higher touch financial underlying financials or something like that. Mm-hmm. It's not as uh, clear cut that the U.S. is um, that stronger. So I think that's in terms of hedging, I think it's just a sector hedge too to have a global diversification. Yeah. Well, I think the last piece we want to touch on is just related to what, and this is, I guess, another good segue to what you're doing personally on the ETF side. And you have a company called Discipline Funds and the Discipline ETF. And I'd just love to spend five minutes talking about the makeup of that ETF and how it's managed. Yeah, so it's actually a stock bond allocation. It's a global stock weighting that's weighted based on that full cap weighting that I just was discussing. So inside of the equity piece, it's approximately a 40-60 US versus foreign slice. But the kicker is we actually use only domestic high-quality bonds. But the kicker with what I'm trying to do with the discipline fund is that even though it's this super diverse, it's 10,000 plus global stocks and bonds, very, very diverse overall instrument. What I'm really trying to do is different from what a lot of sort of plain vanilla index funds do in that because I'm taking a fund of funds and wrapping it inside of one ETF, we're able to be more dynamic inside of the way we rebalance. And so the beauty of the, or really the secret sauce of like the single ETF structure is that because we're able to do these rebalancings without capital gains distributions, or at least not as much capital gains distribution in the long run as say like a mutual fund would distribute, we're able to be a little bit more dynamic managing mainly investor behavior. And so for instance, with the discipline fund, what we did was we took a 50-50 stock bond benchmark. And what it does is it actually calibrates what the underlying risk of not only the financial markets, but the macro economy is. And we actually rebalance in a counter cyclical way. So for instance, like your typical stock bond index fund, say a 60-40 fund, what happens with that fund is it will grow eventually into like a 70-30, let's say. So in the last like couple of years, it would have a 60-40 grows into a 70-30 and it just always slaps the equity piece back to 60%. So it's kind of assuming this static risk exposure inside of the 60% piece where that piece is actually extremely risky in terms of its volatility, roughly 85% of the overall volatility in a 60-40 comes only from the 60% equity slice. So you're in terms of where your downside risk is, you're actually much more overweight stocks than you probably think. And that's especially true at certain times. And so what we're doing with the way that we rebalance countercyclically, meaning that, for instance, right now, our 50-50 benchmark is actually we're underweight 
We're down to 43% stocks right now. And so we're underweight stocks with the assumption that the stock market is expected to generate lower future returns, that the macroeconomic and the financial risks are a little bit elevated right now. And ultimately, the goal with that is we're trying to better behave across time, really create a little bit of a smoother style of return so that we can maintain this sort of long-term perspective where we're doing a lot of the really smart sort of vanguardian type of things like, you know, keeping our fees low, keeping our taxes low, thinking long-term, but doing so in a way that's a little bit more manageable. So like the fund is down something like 3.5% this year and the S&P is down 10% and the you know Vanguard total world is down something like 8%. And so that's really the goal is to buffer some of the downside risk when the equity markets appear a little bit riskier than average with the goal of hopefully performing, you know, God, it would be icing on the cake to generate some alpha from this, but that's not really the goal. The goal for me is really to generate behavioral alpha by helping people behave better and not especially not overreact in the moments where they're most likely to overreact. And so I think it's super cool to do it under the umbrella of an ETF where you're operating tax efficiently when you're making these strategic changes. Yeah, you know, I it's funny. I always think about this and I, I don't know why Vanguard doesn't have a million of these things. iShares has actually a few and they've been around for a while, like a 60-40 and a 40-60. And I think they even have like a something like a 2575 or something like that stock bond, but nothing that's dynamic like this. And to me, I don't know, this thing, I've been running separately managed accounts. And so running into this you know, tax efficiency problem was always a huge problem because I'm using like five or six underlying ETFs typically in my portfolios. And you run into scenarios like right now where you almost can't rebalance the equity piece because the capital gains are so huge. And in a taxable account, it just makes it not impossible to rebalance, but it's hard to digest when the gains are as big as they are. And you know, you're going to have to write a check in April for, you know, whatever, hundreds of thousands of dollars or whatever, just because you wanted to rebalance your risk profile. And so being able to do this inside of the wrapper of a single ETF makes a ton of sense. And especially with the ability to potentially, you know, Maybe you can be, you know, let's say the market is on the verge of a big downturn right now. And what if we're closer to being a 40-60 fund right now at a time when on average, yeah, we'd like to be 50-50 or 60-40 on average. But what if you could be the 40-60 at the right times in the market cycle and be able to rebalance at some point in the future after the market has declined and become a lot more attractive where, you know, say the end of this year, the equity market is down 25 or 30 percent, and our fund is rebalancing into something that's closer to a 60-40. To me, from an indexing perspective, it's like it's kind of like having your cake and eating it too in a lot of ways. What are the triggering events for the particular fund? Let's say that we do have a market correction that you're talking about. Is it subjective or is it built into the model? I built it all algorithmically at this point. So it's all very systematic. I mean, it's very, very broad, long-term, typically like highly, highly pro-cyclical trends. So things like credit spreads and uh, the yield curve and valuations, these things that tend to be very, very pro-cyclical in the long run. So it's not like a fast moving type of 
You know, like this thing, it wouldn't have rebalanced like in the last month because of what's happened in the stock market. It takes big, big financial and macroeconomic trends. So it's designed to be very long-term thinking by nature, but it's really working against a lot of the big, really highly pro-cyclical trends in not just the financial markets, but also the macro economy. So trying to rebalance where to a large degree, the model is based on the thinking that as the economy gets really sort of expansive and tightens up a lot, that typically economic risks tend to rise in those sorts of environments. And the financial markets tend to become riskier in those environments when the economy gets really, really strong and really, you know, like when the unemployment rate gets really, really low, things like that, where you've kind of pulled a lot of the, you know, to use a cheesy term, like a lot of the easy money gets made on the way to those environments. And so, you know, people tend to sort of think that when the economy is good, it means that, well, things are just going to stay good or they can't get bad. And a lot of the times, you know, it's weird thinking of like the unemployment rate as this like very sort of pro-cyclical, like really risk management tool for corporations, because what typically happens is corporations typically they hire lots of people and they shed people when the risks get higher. And so the unemployment rate has this huge ebb and flow over time that's very, very pro-cyclical, where typically when the unemployment rate gets very, very low, it oftentimes means that the risks in the economy are higher, mainly because there's just not that much more slack to be pulled into the economy to create the expansion that you need to keep everything vibrant. And if you run into a shock, typically, you know, workers are one of the first things to go because it's the way that corporations manage their risks and their expenses in the long run. So it's very long-term in nature, but designed to try to manage risk without being, you know, like hyperactive in the sort of traditional active way that we think of a lot of active management. So it is active across time, but it's, to be honest, it's really just more dynamic rebalancing is what it's doing. And so there could be years and years where this thing goes by and doesn't really rebalance that much, there could be, you know, depending on what's going on in the economy, there could be periods where it looks much more active. But on average, it's designed to be a fairly passive style of investing. Well, listen, Colin, this was fantastic to have you and we're coming up on an hour on the recording. So we want to cut it off here and say thank you and hope to have you back. But it was really enjoyable meeting you and having the conversation. Yeah, you too. Thank you, guys. Thanks for listening to this episode of Lanyap. This podcast is brought to you by Stokes Family Office and produced by Reverb. If you liked this episode, consider sharing it with a friend. You can subscribe to future episodes in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. For more information about Stokes Family Office and Lanyap, visit us at stokesfamilyoffice.com. The information in this podcast is educational and general in nature and does not take into consideration the listener's personal circumstances. Therefore, it is not intended to be a substitute for specific individualized financial, legal, or tax advice. To determine which strategies or investments may be suitable for you, 
Consult the appropriate qualified professional prior to making a final decision.